Hey everyone, I'm Chris Hall and this is the Downtime Podcast, where we're going to be taking you deeper than ever into the gravity-based side of mountain biking. This week's episode is supported by Seven Mesh. Seven Mesh is based in the mountains of British Columbia and was founded by three of the team from high-end outdoor clothing brand Arcteryx. In fact, I'm joined by one of their founders, Ian Martin, for this week's show. As you'd expect from that combo of challenging terrain, extremely varied weather and incredible skills and experience in the outdoor clothing world, Seven Mesh are making truly high-performance clothing for mountain biking, gravel and road riding. They're working super hard to give us new options and better solutions to meet our needs, which is designed to last the test of time and not just the next season. Needless to say, the performance is next level, but their gear is built to last in the harshest of conditions and to keep you comfortable for as long as you're prepared to go. Seven Mesh are always looking forward and they've just launched their brand new AirMap collection. AirMap uses a unique approach of different map layers that uses incoming air to expel warm, moist air out of the garment, while blocking air and water in the places where you need it to. This allows them to individually tune the product's performance to the specific requirements of each area of the garment, and believe me, you can actually feel that while you're wearing it. The entire range is also free from PFAS and PFCs, known as the Forever Chemicals. Head to their website to find out more about the AirMap range. Alongside AirMap, they've also got lots of other incredible products that are going to improve your comfort whatever the weather. I'd highly recommend checking out their Chilka Anorak, which was by far my most worn piece of bike clothing last autumn, winter and spring. You can see the entire range at 7mesh.com. Whether you're wanting to try 7mesh for the first time or you're already hooked, they're offering downtime listeners a 20% discount using the code 7MeshXDowntime20. That's the number 7 followed by MeshXDowntime, then the number 20, all lowercase with no spaces. So that's 7MeshXDowntime20 over at 7mesh.com. Head over now and check them out and what's even better is that they ship globally. So wherever you are, you can get your hands on some top quality riding gear. That code will run until the end of January 2024. Just a few more quick things before we get stuck into this week's episode. If you want to support the podcast, then you can either set up a regular donation via my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash downtime podcast, or grab yourself some merch from downtimepodcast.com forward slash shop, or just share the episodes with your friends or on your social media and spread the word. I really appreciate everyone who supports what I do. It really makes a huge difference. So thank you for your support. Also, don't forget to follow the podcast to make sure you never miss an episode. You can do that by hitting that button in your podcast app now, or there's buttons for all the major platforms over at downtimepodcast.com forward slash follow. You can either listen to today's episode right here, or if you prefer to watch it, you can now do that over on my YouTube channel, which is youtube.com forward slash at downtimepodcast. All the links for all of that are in the show notes for this episode over on downtimepodcast.com. All right, today I'm joined by Ian Martin, one of the founders of cycle clothing company 7Mesh. Find out how Ian's passion for the outdoors led him to learn how to make garments and ultimately into working for Arcteryx. We chat about how an old friendship eventually led to Ian, Callum and Tyler founding their own company with 7Mesh. Hear what goes into designing quality clothing for mountain biking, how 7Mesh approach design, the challenge of removing forever chemicals from your range and plenty more. I learnt heaps in this chat with Ian and I hope you do too. So, without further ado, here's Ian Martin. Ian Martin, welcome to the Downtime Podcast. How's things with you today? See a big stack of fabric in the background. There's a little bit of a giveaway about what we're going to talk about. Yeah, always always fabric around, that's for sure. Uh, good, yeah. All, all good here in Squamish today. Good stuff, man. Well, let's, um, let's start off by getting a little bit of background on yourself. First off... Just tell us a bit about kind of where your interest in the outdoors and outdoor sports comes from. What was what was growing up like for you? Yeah, um, I grew up on the east coast of Canada in Newfoundland. 
So, uh, you know, a pretty, you know, big geographic area, you know, it's a huge island, um, but uh, population-wise pretty sparse. So I uh, grew up doing a lot of stuff outside, whether it was biking or skiing or fishing or you, know, you name it. We were kind of outside all the time. Uh, yeah, I don't know. We did lots of winter camping, canoeing, you, you name it, we did it. Um, so we spent a lot of time just living outside basically as kids. Yeah. And what about what about the sporting side of things then? Were there particular outdoor pursuits that you were attracted to? Yeah, I was really into rock climbing, um, sort of like from junior high onward. And that's kind of, you know, I got really into, we did a lot of canoe trips and things like that. But, you know, rock climbing was kind of my thing. Sea kayaking, I got really into. Um, bike riding was just like always around. You know, there, there, wasn't a, there wasn't a real developed riding community back then. You know, that, this is like you know, late eighties, early nineties, you know, kind of at that, you know, age, I'm kind of dating myself here, but you know, uh, but that's, that's kind of what it was. And I found Newfoundland because it was so isolated. It was about, you know, it was five to seven years kind of delayed. So, you know, if, if something, you know, pre-internet, if there was something happening, like, uh, you know, on the mainland, you know, in upper Canada, uh, you know, uh, it didn't come to the Island for like another five to seven years after that. So it was kind of a, a bit of a bit of a kind of a cool little bubble there, actually, where, you know, it just did it kind of did its own thing is it it's out there. It's the most easterly city in North America. You know, it's closer to closer to you, actually, than it is to than it is to Squamish for sure by, uh, you know, by about five times. So, you know, it's a it's a pretty cool place. It's a cool place yeah. to grow up. That's amazing. And were you like, was your interest in materials and clothing, is that driven from your time in those sports and like geeking out on all the equipment? Yeah, good question. I mean, you know, um, you know, growing up, you know, you're always looking for, so the other precursor there is the weather in Newfoundland is absolutely (laughs) atrociously horrible. So, you know, it, it makes like, you know, the weather in Wales look like great. So, you know, it's like uh, there's sideways blowing rain all the time. If it's not that, it's freezing rain. I mean, it was, it's a horrible weather place for sure. I mean, when you get a a day in between that, a beautiful sunshine. And uh, so that definitely, that shaped my upbringing for sure. And, you know, at a very young age, I was looking for solutions for, you know, how to be drier, how to be more comfortable. We do these sort of like five, six day adventures all the time with a bunch of buddies um, we were heavily involved in kind of scouts growing up, which is, you know, mm-hmm. popular in the UK and things like that. But we had a really good group who would, you know, plan these sort of like, I don't know, what do you, what do you want to call it? Uh, self-contained adventures where we would just like, you know, pack all our food, we'd freeze dry our own stuff. We'd go out in these kind of like long overnight adventures and do these things growing up. And, um, it was awesome, whether it was winter camping, uh, or canoeing or, you know, ski touring or, uh, biking, um, we kind of had a great adventure for all those things. So, uh, you know, at an early age, I remember being like going through like, you know, in, in Canada and in Newfoundland in the eighties, it was like the only place you could get stuff was like the Canadian tire catalog, which was like hunting and fishing stuff, you know? And so Canadian tire is like a big chain here in Canada where you can get everything from automotive repair right through to like hockey gear and, you know, the gamut of camping gear in between. So you couldn't really get a whole lot. And then kind of, um, 1980, Six eighty seven, uh, I discovered Mountain Equipment Co-op, which was a Vancouver-based company who had like 
outdoor gear and things like that. And they had a mail order catalog. You know, before that we were looking at like LL Bean, but then you'd have to buy it from the states and the conversion in the dollar. And like, you know, my paper route only paid for so much, so much <laughs> gear. So then, um, yeah, we kind of went through that process and then discovered MEC and they had pretty good price stuff. And I remember I saved up and saved up and saved up and I bought my uh, first Gore-Tex jacket. Um, you know, and it was like a two layer hung liner. It's kind of all I could afford at the time. But it was, it was a lot of money for me, but it wasn't the best jacket you could get either. And, uh, you know, used it in the pouring rain on my paper route, you know, like every afternoon. And, um, and then one day I was just like, this thing doesn't work. It's not working. You know, it's like not working. How I remember talking on the phone and they, you know, at, to someone at MEC to try to figure out why it wasn't working. And uh, they put me through to someone in the design department. And years later, and he told me all about oil contamination and the issues that Gore-Tex had at the time and why, you know, it, it needs to be washed frequently. And he went through the whole thing. And then years and years and years later, um, you know, when I finished university and was working at Arcteryx, uh, I connected the dots and found out one of the guys there who I learned a tremendous amount from was actually the guy I talked to on the phone. <laughs> at that time and he, he it was like this is like 25 years later and he's like i'm like oh yeah i called them i remember when i was you know when i was a kid my paper bought my first jacket and he's like that was you and i was like what <laughs> that was you like you know kind of one of those moments i was like no way you know i'm super cool and you know he was a uh, kind of one of my mentors for sure and learned a tremendous amount from him along the way so yeah That's kind of uh you know horrible weather definitely informed uh sort of my career and um you know, the internet's a wonderful thing. You can find information so much e easier now. Uh, but back then, you're trying to figure out what are you going to do for a living? You know, how, oh, how am I going to research, you know, universities or programs or career fields? I mean, it, you know, if I had known there was industrial design, that's probably where I would have gone. Um, but, you know, I didn't even know that field existed until like my second or third year at university. So what did, what did you study at university? <laughs> well, that's a loaded question. Uh, so uh, I did a year business school, actually, because uh -huh. I was totally interested in being an entrepreneur and starting my own business <clears throat> and was really into guiding at the time. Uh, <clears throat> sorry. Uh, and I hated it. It was absolute hell for me. It was like, uh, no offense to people who are going to business school. I actually think that commerce is a great field to go into and all these things and totally like it. But everyone, in my opinion, was focused on the wrong thing. Uh, they were all focused on money, money, money. And I'm like, well, I was focused on like doing something really cool, not on necessarily the cash. And I always feel like if you do something really cool, the money will follow, you know, hopefully <laughs> you're not all starving. Um, but, uh, you know, and that, that wasn't the case. So, you know, I, I think I, I was there for a semester and a half and then I was like, I'm out. Uh, and then I, so I enrolled in this really interesting program in the center of the country. Um, I did a honors degree and, you know, I was there for a week and, you know, my father was like terrified that I was going to like drop out. He didn't know what I was going to do. And I was, you know, abstract. I wasn't very focused, let's say at that point in my life. And, uh, he's just like, it's going to be a miracle if, if my son graduates kind of thing, you know, like, <laughs> and, uh, and it's from his point of view, I, I don't blame him at all. I actually think he's probably right. And, um, so I did an, an honors degree in outdoor recreation, parks and tourism, and I focused on like industrial standards for like climbing gyms and focused on that kind of thing as my thesis. But 
within a week of enrolling the program, I realized you could do two degrees at one time. And my, you know, my dad was like, Oh my God, don't do two. Just keep it simple here, dude. Just keep it simple. And of course I enrolled in a geography degree at the same time. And did, so I did a double degree program and anyway, totally unrelated, really. Like they, one thing that was cool about the program is they had, they had a, it used to be a college program like 20 years prior. And one of the things they kept was a, like a outdoor gear making lab like where okay. you, they had like industrial sewing machines and bolts of fabric, you could buy materials and things like that. And I, you know, I was making stuff long before that. Like I, I started, my mom was a textile artist. And so I used to break her sewing machines all the time. She hated me using them. And, uh, <laughs> father was an engineer. So we were kind of like, I mean, I grew up building things. Um, you know, it's like most of my family is like an architect or an engineer or an artist. They're all kind of like in that realm like both extended and uh and in my family so um yeah so I, i've been making stuff my whole life i might one of my first things i ever made was like a climbing harness you know it's like on my you know it's, it was solid and totally safe yeah. but it's like you know not an easy endeavor to take on and then um yeah just kind of built stuff throughout my career i was always sort of like and i think that came from it was hard to get stuff in newfoundland growing up you know you couldn't get equipment uh for things and, uh, so, you know, we'd be like, well, if you can't buy it or it's too expensive, just make your own. And so we kind of learned through that process a little bit. And then, um, yeah, I went to university and then ended up, uh, my wife and I are both kind of similarly minded. I met her at school and, uh, so we were in our third year of school and we're like, yeah, it'd be really fun to have some sea kayaks, but we can't afford sea kayaks. So we're like, and we were doing these adventures on the East Coast, and then we drive to the West Coast, which is, you know, in Canada, like I've driven across Canada like 11 times or something, which is like, you know, 8,000 kilometers like driving. <laughs> it's like pretty wild. So, uh, you know, back when fuel was like 35 cents a liter. So, um, so you know, uh, I met her and we we're like, oh, let's build a, we'll build Cedar Strip Sea Kayaks. And we bought this book at Mount Kumakop in Vancouver one summer. And we're like, oh yeah, we'll build boats. And we're like, okay, they've got a paddle project. Let's build a paddle first. And we like, so we like did the, you know, follow the instructions and not the instructions, but the book. And we're like, okay, we'll build paddles. And the paddles were like, horribly went wrong. Like it was like the worst <laughs> paddles, like completely unusable, like total garbage. And we looked at each other. We're like, all right, well, let's start on the boat now. <laughs> and the, the boats turned out great but it, you know that was like my fourth year of university while doing a double degree i we also built like sea kayaks in our basement which were like i don't know how many hours like each boat was probably like 1500 hours or something like it's it was an insane insanely you know long project and we were up to like four in the morning every night and she's kind of like um she loves stats and tables and things like that so she had like a calendar worked out of like Okay, if we put a coating of fiberglass on now and we let it dry, then we can – we got a gap between our courses tomorrow. So then we can go come back and we can stand that and then we can put the next coat on. And it was like da 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 like kind of like crazy work schedule. So I think we're just maybe suckers for punishment. We were doing it in the basement of this house we were renting uh, in northern Ontario. And uh, yeah, so we – we and we didn't one thing we didn't actually know we didn't know if we'd get the boat out of the house we weren't sure if it would fit around <laughs> the pillars in the basement or we'd have to like remove a window so eventually you know the day came to take the boat out and we had to like open up one of the basement windows and slide it out to get around this post and it made it by like inches you know and then we got it out i was like oh god that was close like so we're gonna have to tear down a wall to get these boats out you know so uh super fun project yeah like and we learned a lot from that and then um you know after that uh 
we did a summer in Newfoundland. Uh, mm-hmm. Both of us worked for the Coast Guard doing like inshore search and rescue, which was super fun. Best summer job that I discovered too late in my life, like working on the boats and Northern Ireland and huge water and like just, just having a ball. It was super fun, like on these little Zodiacs. And then uh, after that, we were like, ooh, what do we do now? And so my wife was going back to school to do a master's program. I was debating doing a master's in like GIS mapping, you know, things like that. I was kind of into that at the time. And then, uh, and then my buddy who we started the business seven mesh with, uh, Callum Davidson, uh, and Tyler Jordan's the other partner, but Callum was working at Arcturx at the time as like a accounting assistant, I think, or something like that. And, um, we grew up together in Newfoundland and he was working in Vancouver or in Burnaby at the time. And I was like, Hey, do they have any jobs? Like, uh, I like making stuff. Like maybe I could do something there. And, uh, and he's like, well, give me a resume. And I had to make a resume and like, I sent it, you know, did whatever. And he like kept every time someone would be like, I need someone to do something. He'd like pass my resume across the table, you know, total garbage resume, you know, it would have had like nothing on it of substance. And then, um, and then one day someone called me and they're just like, Hey, we got this like marketing internship. We want to like do this mapping project. We're going to like look at data, blah, blah, blah. And they're like, uh, I'm like, well, that sounds pretty good. Like as a kind of a foot in the door, I could see how the industry works, blah, blah, blah. And she's like, well, yeah, but we can't pay you. And I was like, well, what do you mean? You me? Like, this is the craziest thing I've ever heard. She's like, yeah, we don't really have any funding for that. And Arcteryx was, you know, at the time was probably, I don't know, like a $20 million business. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe, which, you know, that was, what year was that? Uh, 2001, 2002, 2002, maybe. <clears throat> and uh, it's a pretty small little business. Made climbing harnesses, backpacks. They just launched um, uh, apparel a few years prior to that, like four years prior to that. So clothing, like Gore-Tex jackets and stuff. And uh, yeah, it was kind of a small company that had their own factory. 99% of the manufacturing was done like in the back room, basically, at the factory. So it was super cool. Uh, really interesting time. There was probably 25, 30 people in the head office, like excluding manufacturing uh, at the time. So they, anyway, so they came back and said, well, you want this job? We're not going to pay you. And I said, well, I need to eat. So I went out and found this government program for university grads or whatever. This is called the, the IRAP program. It's an industrial research assistance program. And I somehow convinced uh, them to like chip in half. And then I chipped in the other, or the program chipped in the other half. And I got kind of a chance. And so it was me and with this other guy, uh, he was working for free at the time and, and he, I got him on the program too. So he actually <laughs> got funding because of it. And then uh, we worked in the, we were in the sample closet cause there was no room in the place at the time. It was totally packed full of people. Uh, and then, you know, kind of just like worked on that project for I think six months. And I was like, Oh man, I'm going to lose my brain. Like this is not like entering data on like data analytics, not, not my cup of tea. I like numbers, but that's like, uh, you know, deep diving on that is pretty tough. And then, um, I convinced every chance I could get, I'd be up in the design department trying to make stuff as much as I could. Um, and then this woman, Laura holding who, uh, at the time was like, Hey, we're going to start this department of people that do like product development. And I'm like, what's product development. And it was like, you know, more like uh, figuring out how things are made, taking information from design and kind of processing it, working with the factory, kind of be the interface between the two. Uh, and they didn't know what to do with any of the backpacks and climbing harnesses. That was like 
they were like, you know, it's, it's easy to get product developers for like in Vancouver in the apparel industry, but, um, hard goods is a little hard goods as they called it. You know, it's not, not mm-hmm. the same as a bike industry where hard goods is real hard things. Um, it was a bit of a mystery. It was kind of a, um, mystic arts. And so, um, anyway, so I got a job doing that as like the junior and worked in a development, you know, a group with like five other women who were like industry veterans and knew what they were doing and learned as much as they could there. And then after doing that for like two years, I was like, I can't, I can quit. I'm, you know, I can't do this more, more of my focus is more, you know, design focus, this and that. And, uh, I'd been making a bunch of climbing harnesses at the time just for myself. Mm-hmm. And I convinced someone, uh, actually Tyler, who we started the business with, who was at the time, I think the COO maybe, I mean, C- titles at that size of a business are kind of funny because, you know, you, you kind of do everything anyway. Uh, and then he eventually became the president. He's just like, I think we should hire you to do something like you're, you're cheap, you're, you're young, you know, that's true. I was super cheap. And so he, he said, uh, why don't we give you a chance to do some harnesses? And so I started working on this harness project because honestly, no one else wanted to put their hand up to do it. A lot of the knowledge from harnesses had been left, even though it was like Arcteric started as a rock climbing harness business, mm-hmm. um, and then it became backpacks, and then it became Vortex jackets, and to the point now where people are like, Arcteric makes harnesses? Like, oh my goodness, that's amazing. You know, it's the full circle there uh, of information, <clears throat> as the company now is like, you know, I'm guessing, but you know, like probably like one and a half billion dollar business. You know, it's a big business now, um, you know, from 20 million. So, um, yeah, so anyway, uh, convinced someone to let me do that. And then halfway through that project, I ended up, um, I was working with, the, I guess, my boss at the time, who was like amazing mentor, uh, Tom Fail, and uh, working with him on the Harness Project. And then we pulled in, like the original founder came in and Dave Lane and kind of came in. He was like a harness guy and worked for like harnesses for the movie industry. So got to work with him. And then eventually halfway through that project, we had this like backpack project where the whole company was working on and it was like going sideways. So I jumped off of that project for like a year and got to like work really closely with the factory on that. Um, And this kind of relationship formed between kind of my ability to kind of like problem solve and like, you know, work with people in the factory and, you know, we having our own facility. It's it's really hard like now if you were getting into the industry because you don't, you don't get to interact with factories and, you know, mm-hmm. and how things are made and, and sometimes how simple it is to make things and people overthink it a little bit. Um, you know, all the factories are contract factories and you, you have to interface with them in a different way because uh, they've got 10 other customers who, you know, are doing that. They want to be the expertise in the manufacturing. Whereas, you know, Arcteryx at the time was the wild, wild west. It was like, you know, they, they couldn't get anyone to build Gore-Tex jackets the way they want it. Uh, they couldn't get anyone to build backpacks the way they want it. They couldn't get anyone to build harnesses the way they want it. So they, they started their own facility. And uh, by doing that, they innovated a ton of things. You know, the urethane-coated zippers, the color match zippers, the non-flapped zippers, thermoforming foams in backpacks was like a first thing. So, you know, there's all these innovations that have happened <clears throat> out of that. But that link to manufacturing I think is really where that that was the key that kind of unlocked it is people were able to yeah figure new ways to do things and if it didn't work the way someone said they'd find a new way to do it and you know there's a group of I want to say a dozen people maybe less than that it might have been eight at the time kind of in the design department who were doing that and 
having that experience to be able to dive in deep with the factories and find out what works and what doesn't, for me, really impacted the way I think about things going forward because that's where the innovation's happening. You know, it's one thing to design something. It's another thing to, like, actually get it made. And so you need to know, like, you have to design within the medium you're in, but you need to know what the constraints are so that you can break them. You know, if, if your constraint is... If you want to do something innovative, you need to know what they can and can't do. And, you know, if you go to a contract factory, and we use lots of contract factories, and they're great partners, but it's hard to get innovation done. And so having mm-hmm. your, you know, you have to basically prove the concept. So, you know, at 7Mesh, we, I mean, we prove that concept. We, we develop everything in-house. We develop textiles from scratch with partners. Um, we build prototypes. We ride in them. We test them. We come back. We think about what we want to do. And... We truly believe like it's not everyone's like, oh, you know, you know, distilling it to its like purest form or whatever. And I, I kind of think it's like you start with the purest form and you add only what's what's needed kind of as you build it up. And by doing this trial and error um, and prototyping this sort of rapid prototyping phase that we do, um, you're able to really innovate through that. You know, we don't have our own factory, unfortunately, but um, it's really hard running a factory. It's like really, really hard. It's like uh, there's a special kind of person that has has to do that, and I think um, I I don't know if I have the energy to do that any, anymore in my life. I, although I keep toying with the idea with special projects, going oh we could hire like two or three people and run a little factory down here. But running a big production facility, and especially in North America, is really, really hard. You know, there's lots of people doing um, amazing things like We Are One. Um, Camloops doing like, you know, all carbon fiber bikes and, and, um, and rims and bars. And I, my hat is off to those guys. It's uh, it's super cool how they're doing it. Um, but apparel factories is hard and trying to get, um, like workers who are skilled to do it. Like everyone thinks, Oh, well it's a jacket. I put it into the jacket machine and a jacket pops out <laughs> on the other side. You're like, no, like, I mean the first Arcteryx jacket we did was like 900 minutes to make <clears throat> like completely like not making any money on that. And the goal was always like, I think it was like 200 minutes or 300 mm-hmm. minutes to make a jacket. Uh, I might be off on that. I'm you know, getting a little older, forgetting details, but, um, but it, you know, it was always about how many minutes you could get it down to. So you have these, you know, sub operations and components, but you know, um, I'd be shocked if there was as many minutes in, you know, other components in the industry. So apparel, is one of these things where you know fabrics have to come from all over the world. They have to arrive at a facility. The tolerances are super sloppy. It's not like a machined aluminum piece where you're like milling it down to like you know, um, you know, point zero one of a millimeter or whatever the tolerance is. Fabrics like plus or minus quarter inch, you know, and you're like, that's kind of sloppy. And you know, so uh, you have to be able to do that. And so the only way you're able to get like good tolerances is just having really skilled people. And so <clears throat> Vancouver at the time was this sort of hub for, you know, um, no one knew what was going to happen in, in Hong Kong uh-huh. uh, at the time because, you know, Hong Kong was going from a British colony and being transferred over in, what was that, 98, 97, 98, 99, somewhere in that zone, uh, maybe 2000, I'm not sure. Uh, and so all these sort of, uh, you know, Immigrants from Hong Kong were looking for other passports. So, you know, if you meet anyone in Hong Kong now, it's like, oh, yeah, I've got a New Zealand passport, I've got an Australian passport, I've got a Canadian passport, and somewhere close by where they had a relative or whatever. And so a lot of the skilled labor that we had at Arcteryx, I mean, it was from people all over the world, um, you know, including Canada, but um, 
you know, the Canadians just don't have that same level of skilled labor. So people were immigrating and they were looking for a job and they were just really good at what they did. And so, you know, every year we looked at the demographics of that factory and the, the average age just kept getting higher. <laughs> and, and you're like, well, who are we going to hire in the future? And so Vancouver's got this amazing, you know, we're only 45 minutes from Vancouver down the highway, but it's got this amazing kind of like manufacturing textile business culture. You know, you got Arcteryx, you got Lululemon, you got Aritzia, you've got um, Mustang Survival, you've got like all these businesses that are, you know, came out of Vancouver, which is pretty cool. Um, and, you know, they're Herschel, they're like big hubs for all that stuff. And so uh, there's all these little manufacturing facilities and the textile knowledge is, is huge. Uh, within Vancouver. So it's kind of a bit of a North American hub of knowledge. Um, yeah. Super cool. Yeah, Art for sure. Yeah. It sounds like Art Terex was a real like big part of the foundation of your, your learning and experimentation and the processes that you've sort of follow now. Like, but how do we get from you, Tyler <laughs> and Callum being friends and working together at Art yeah, Terex totally. to deciding to start your own thing and also kind of moving I guess a bit away from climbing and like focusing on the, the mountain bike cycling side of things as well. Cause it's a bit of a shift in sport. Totally. So yeah, good question. Um, <clears throat> we're, um, so obviously I knew Callum, I knew I've known Callum since I was like 15 or 16 or something like that. So we grew up actually, uh, got to be really good friends working in a climbing gym on the East coast and then, you know, having adventures and doing that. And I actually was a couple of years older, so I knew his sister quite well, but, um, didn't know him super well until that point. And then TJ or Tyler, um, met at Arcteryx and like my first day there, I was just like, Hey, who are you? Kind of thing. And he's like, Oh, I'm the, I'm the, uh, COO or whatever his position was at the time. I think he was the VP of finance actually at the time, uh-huh. something like that. Um, uh, finance and operations. So that's like the catch all in a small business for like the stuff that no one else wants to do, uh, <laughs> because it's like a super hard job and you gotta like, you know, so, you know, TJ kind of all of us have kind of funny backgrounds. So, you know, TJ was like a biologist and ended up, you know, having a scholarship to go do that. Or, you know, he applied for this job at Arcteryx as an administrator. And, you know, 19 years later, 16, 17 years later, he became the CEO. So, uh, he kind of worked his way up because he's a hard worker and super dedicated. And, uh, Callum, the same thing, you know, he was kind of started as an accounting assistant there and then ended up, uh, finishing up as like the director of operations or something, sort of running all okay. the uh, factories and factory relationships and vendor relationships and things like that. So, uh, and then, you know, I, I ran a, a department doing design. So, um, design work. So <clears throat> we kind of met through Arcteryx and then, uh, TJ had left, you know, uh, Arcteryx had been sold, bought and sold a few times, um, during that, uh, period of time. Uh, I got bought and sold just before I got there to, Solomon Adidas, and then after that, it got bought um, by Aimer Sports. Uh, and so, you know, with, with the first couple of changes were actually weren't bad. They were actually kind of good. It, it, everyone could ease off on the finance side of things. Like, you know, how do I, with a business that's growing really aggressively, financing it's really hard. You know, mm-hmm. you have to come up with that much extra money every year to finance your inventory, and then your lead times. You know, from when you. <laughs> when you pay out your cash for your, your goods and when you get that money back are really long. Uh, it's uh, Apparel's got really long lead times for that kind of thing. Uh, materials and it's they're complex. They've all got, you know, cl- you know cl- between 
30 and 100 materials in every garment, you know, and between thread and trim and tags and, you know, zipper pulls. It's, com it's actually relatively complex. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, so we, so anyway, we were all working at this business. Um, in 2012, I think TJ, it became just really hard for him to do this job as the president. And so he decided to step away um, from the organization at that time because of, you know, big company problems. And we all kind of stuck it out for a year. And we've been talking about, so we all lived in Squamish and we used to carpool together every day uh, down to North Vancouver. And so it's about a 45 minute commute. And, you know, we'd always have this rule, like what happens in this carpool stays in the carpool kind of thing, you know? And, and, uh, we did that for years and years and years. You know, originally it was just TJ and I, and then Callum moved up here and then, you know, a bunch of other people moved up here as well and all good, good folks and super fun commuting with them. Uh, and we talked about cycling and all the time, and we were all cyclists riding the test metal up here in Squamish and the trail network in Squamish in 2001, 2002 was, you know, pretty limited, still awesome trails. Like at the time we were like, these trails are awesome, but they're pretty limited and, uh, very different riding than say the North shore. So uh -huh. whether you're riding in North Vancouver, um, or you're riding up here or you're riding on the Sunshine coast, like the riding in each area, even though they're close by is quite different. And at that time, Squamish was like known for its riding, but not like today. Like, you, you know, you could go to, if you went to any trade show and you'd be like, I'm from Squamish, you'd have to, you'd have to explain to someone, even 10 years ago, you'd have to explain to them, oh, it's this town between North Vancouver and Whistler. And you'd have to like go through that. And now you tell people it's Squamish and they're just like, yeah, we know Squamish. It's in like every mountain bike magazine on the planet. Yeah. So that, that's kind of a novelty for us because we've been living here for 20 years now, longer. And, um, so we were riding every day and then we were just, we always talked about the gap between, you know, at the time, a lot of the riding gear was either like sublimated garbage, like, you know, the fabric was not very good. Uh, or it was like, if you look at kind of road cross country at the time, you know, it was like, I mean, it was sublimated NASCAR for your body, basically. Like it was just <laughs> logos everywhere, like a total train wreck. The fabrics were horrible. They're all like super high lycra content so they're like you know lycra soaks up like more water than cotton right like it's like a horrible technical fabric so <clears throat> all of us coming from our background in arctics were like you know lycra was like the enemy you know like because it you know cotton kills people say you know when you're a sailor or if you're like a mountaineer and the same is true for lycra like it's not a great fabric for performance textiles it does amazing things with stretch and recovery uh, lycra or elastane or spandex, whatever you want to call it. It's all polyurethane, elastane urine. So um, anyway, so we talked about this gap for years and years and years. And outdoor had a gap like way back when, you know, when the retailers were really uneducated. They were like guide outfitters who would, you know, carry a line of boots and then they'd carry a line of crampons and then they'd carry a line of ropes. And these businesses were built kind of like organically. Well, cycling 10 years ago, I mean, there's some good retailers out there, but man, some of them were pretty crude. So we talked about, you know, uh, we just had our 10 year anniversary from starting seven mesh. And at the time we talked about sort of the challenge of the retail landscape and cycling for apparel. You know, a lot of them are really focused on bikes and bike components and service and that kind of thing. But apparel is a bit of a challenge. And we talked about sort of like the challenge and the opportunity and weighing those two out and how they would, how they would work. And that's, kind of how, why we started the brand. And so, you know, TJ had left the business and then, um, 
a uh, little, little over a year after that. And you know, I've been talking to him a bunch and finally he's just like, you know, he's been talking about it and all these things. And I have a tendency to kind of like, you know, jump in both feet and figure out my way out of it. Um, you know, hence building climbing harnesses when I was 14. Uh, <clears throat> so, and TJ knows that for sure. And, you know, Callum's, uh, very process driven, methodical and, and TJ tends to be, you know, he's kind of in between, I think both of us, to be honest. Uh, so we're kind of a good, good team of three. And, uh, I just basically called him up and I'm just like, Oh, so Hey, uh, that thing we've been talking about, uh, I hope we're going to do that. Cause I quit my job. And he's like, you did what? <laughs> and I'm like, well, I just, I had this sales meeting. I had kind of this epiphany and I, I just, I'm just, I'm just done. I'm just, I don't want to do it anymore. I'm walking around with my computer telling people what we're going to work on versus actually doing it. And so, um, so I quit. And then, uh, very shortly after that, Callum quit. And then we kind of started this, uh, this business. So (laughs) we didn't, and we didn't really have a business plan. We didn't really, I mean, if we had timed it better, we wouldn't have started the business in like September. We would have started it in like January. So then your seasonal calendar was right. So our first season we were like, I mean, it was balls to the wall, like full, you know, feet on the pedals. How do we do this? Like you're building a business from scratch. Um, you got to get all new factories. You got to get all materials lined up. You got to design things. You got to have facilities to like do it in and prototype. Um, so, you know, we were doing it in my like kitchen table originally. And then we were just like, and then we, we leased a space and then, you know, it was a, it was a bit of a process. So, uh, by Christmas time that year, we had like a couple of, we had like one prototype. I remember, uh, Christmas Eve and then finishing, I think the sample on boxing day kind of thing, like maybe after Christmas, like kind of putting it all together and then, you know, going to everyone we knew in the industry and basically begging them to like build some stuff for us and like get a factory partner and kind of, you know, it was a lot of, a lot of hard work in that, um, you know, first couple of years kind of getting it off the ground. And so we, we launched 13 collections and we got a Gore license in the first year. So like Gore-Tex requires you to have like a license to use their materials. So they don't license startups. They like, you have to have like a minimum order of like 5 million bucks or whatever. They, they want the numbers to be relatively high, you know, 5 million bucks. Was, that was years away for us. So, uh, yeah, so we, we, we convinced them to give us some fabric to sample, some tapes. We had a bunch, you know, kicking around from where, from, you know, under our desks and things like that. Um, so we ended up, um, you know, they're like, okay, but you know, if you're going to do this, if we're going to license you, like, um, you can't use Gore-Tex Pro. And we're like, oh, no, no, no. They're like, Pro's not, it's not approved for cycling. It's not approved for cycling. And the whole time we're like sampling Gore-Tex Pro or like <laughs> Gore-Tex Pro. Because we knew it would be good for cycling, just the way it breathes and the way it kind of, it works would be appropriate for mountain biking. And, you know, and so they gave us our license. And I think literally the next day we called up the rep and we're like, okay, so thanks for the license. Really great. Um, you've, you know, for second time you've only, you've start you've licensed a startup in your history. We really appreciate it. Blah, blah, blah. Uh, okay, so we want to use pro and they were just, ah, we hate you. Oh, you guys like, you're killing me here, you know? And, and they're a very established business and very kind of like, um, you know, they have processes. They're, you know, they're actually super innovators. Um, they're just sometimes slow. They're, they got a a very Mm -hmm. odd tip, untypical structure and a super cool business. Um, yeah. So, um, anyway, they eventually finally got that approval and we pushed through some Gore-Tex pro jackets and we were able to launch them in the to market in the fall of 2014. 
So we mm-hmm. did some merch jackets early, and then we seeded the industry with those because uh, we wanted to kind of get our name out there and get that. So that was our first product to market, and then the rest of the product, I think it was 12 other products, came uh, in spring 15 is when we kind of delivered those. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, man. You talk about getting the name out there, but where does the name Seven Mesh come from? It's quite unusual. Yeah, so, good question. So we we originally had like a totally other brand, a bunch of branding ideas, and of course, then you start looking into them. You're like, oh yeah, there's like no no words under you know under seven. I think it's seven letters that are not that don't have uh, like you know web addresses for. I'm like, what the hell? How's that even possible? Um, so uh, it was funny. We were sitting around. Uh, my kitchen table and we were the day before we were supposed to go to Interbike or one of the trade shows uh, before we launched the business and we're just like well we're gonna have to put something on the business cards you know and I've got like the AI file of my computer like making like the business card and I'm like really bad you know graphic artist that's just not my thing and uh, but I'm way better than TJ and Callum so uh, theirs would have been done with like crayons and um, or no TJ's would have been done with crayons and Callum's would have been done on Excel so uh, the you know, we're getting this business cards together and we're like, well, the other name we were going to use, that's not going to work anymore. So what are we going to call ourselves? And we're like, you know, brainstorming names, blah, blah, blah. And Calum's like, well, temporarily, why don't we just call ourselves like seven mesh? And we're like, what's a seven mesh? And he's just like, you know, on the Coast Salish, like signs going into Squamish, like, you know, which is the, uh, you know, the indigenous people from this area and they have the indigenous language, which is actually a it's an oral language and it's been mm-hmm. it was converted in like the forties with the uh, university of British Columbia to like, um, create a written language so that it could be, um, remembered and uh-huh. you know, could be documented better. Um, so, and there's only one thing you can read in it. It's like, I, I'm not even going to attempt to pronunciate it. Um, but in the middle there's like a seven and then it has mesh. And so the seven is like a, is like a glottal stop. It's like a pause when you say the word and mesh. I don't think it actually means anything on its own. Um, and comes with, you know, anything you read on the sign, why don't we just call it seven mesh? And we were just like, okay, that sounds good. You know, kind of thing. That sounds cool. And you know, it's not, it's not a real word. It's, it's, you know, it's taken, it's taken from that as like a story, but it's not, not intended to be anything. And since then actually people are, you know, have kind of like, they recognize it more, but we mm-hmm. went, like I want to say, like two years before anyone knew where the name came from, uh, no one like recognized it or anything, which was kind of funny. Occasionally, you get someone be like, "Oh, I, I saw it on the road. I see where you got the name," uh, kind of thing. Um, yeah, and it's kind of a cool thing. It's local to our area, and um, you know, we have um, yeah, it's kind of cool. Yeah, it's definitely a bit different. So, I mean, you obviously have this background of like doing your own thing, creating your own stuff, working through your own process. But like you say, you're kind of fixed with working with factories outside of Canada and outside of your like direct control. How, how does all that fit together? And like, I guess, what is the creative process for getting a garment into the market for you guys? Yeah. So like on, on the product side, like in the first few years, it was, you know, for the first three months, it was just me. So working on product and it's just the three of us. Um, after that, shortly thereafter, I had a buddy I worked with at Arcteryx, uh, Conroy Noctigal. And so Conroy is, uh, he worked on like snow sports at Arcteryx. And then he also worked on like Valence is sort of their menswear kind of, and Conroy comes from like a very, um, you know, traditional fashion background. He's not a traditional uh-huh. fashion guy, but he comes from that kind of background. Went to school in the UK at a prestigious school and things like that. 
And uh, whereas I'm totally self-taught, like, you know, I'm probably somewhere more on the engineering um, industrial designer side than, than, you know, he's more on the fashion side. So he joined up with us kind of part time. Um, you know, he's comes from a BMX background and is a, you know, snowboarder and just a super fun guy and a super close friend. Um, and you know, he had a similar size department at Arcteric. So we used to go out to lunch and kind of have our like coffee bitch sessions of, oh, you know, you know, every, you know, once a week or whatever. And, uh, yeah, so he joined us about three months in, and so him and I see things very. We come at it from very different points of view, but we actually align with kind of how we think about things. So, like, you know, we always start with a fabric. So, um, it's funny how that works, but like, we we could go to a trade show, and you know, they got these racks of fabric headers, these little like eight, you know eight and a half by eleven pieces of fabric, and you're like thumbing through to see you know what what problems you can solve with each textile. Mm-hmm. So it's always about moisture management or um, you know, how do we keep someone drier? How do we keep someone, uh, wetter? How do we keep someone warmer? How do we keep someone cooler? You know, you're trying to manage the human element of, of people, which are all different with garments that you put on your body. And then people are like, which is the garment that'll work for me? And you're like, well, I don't know you, you know? And so every garment is going to work differently for every person. So Connor and I would like, we could go through like at a trade show, go through like a hundred headers. And I would pick my five that I was like, oh, these five look like they've got some cool shit going on with them, right? Kind of thing. And he would pick five. And I bet three out of both of our fives overlap. That's so it's amazing. like, it's super cool. Like to have that kind of collaborative approach. And like in the first few years, it was like, you know, I, I'm kind of the early morning guy. I generally would wake up quite early and I'm an, I'm an early riser. I'd be asleep by 10. And Connor is the opposite. He would get up late and work late. So I would be like working away on stuff. And my house is only like a couple blocks from the office uh, and he was in the city, so I would start in on something early in the morning, get that kind of dialed, um, you know, work on a pattern, and then I'd just leave it on the table with, like, a note being like, here's where I got. And then he'd come in and he'd, like, jump in and look at what I did. He's like, oh, this is kind of cool. And then he'd change it and modify it and work on it. And that's kind of how we did the first collection. So, but our process is start with a fabric that's going to do something, okay? So, like, yeah. whether it's, hey, like, if it might be off the shelf, it might be, um, a new thing. It might be us going to a vendor and saying, Hey, can you modify this fabric? And, um, you know, can we, we like what this yarn is doing, but we don't like how it's put together. Can we modify it and change it or manipulate it in some way? Can we put a coating on it that works differently? Um, and so we work at that level and generally that's how all of our projects start. It starts with the textile, um, that's going to solve a problem. And then we start building it into an existing style and working up to what that might be and how that's going to work. And then who is it for? Obviously, I mean, we have an idea in their head of who it's for, um, but that's kind of what it's about. So, you know, the materials are equally as important. Um, You know, we kind of view like materials as important. We view ergonomics and shaping and patterning really importantly. Um, Uh You know, at Arcteryx, you know, it was a climbing brand and then it got into skiing and it did these things. So you're always focused on like this articulation of like, how do I get a jacket to like not come untucked from my climbing harness when I reach my arm up to the sky, you know, it does a pull up under the underarm. And so cycling is really different. You've got to like, you know, if you get tighter fitting road gravel type things, it's like when you try it on a change room or wherever at the store, it's like super tight across the chest and it doesn't, you know, it doesn't feel like it fits. And then as you like, you know, move forward the you know that 
goes away and it stretches out, but you don't want it to bag in the front. So you have to stop the bagging in the front. You have to have enough room behind the shoulder to articulate your arms going forward. And you're trying to manage that. So we spent a lot of time working on, yes, the fabric and the fabric development, but also the ergonomics and the patterning and the fit and the shaping and trying to get, you know, that gets easy when you add lycra into the equation. It gets a lot mm-hmm. harder when you don't have as much stretch to work with. Uh, when you start getting into outerwear, it gets extremely hard because now you have the best fabrics are all static. They don't have stretch built into them. You know, there's there's very few, if any, waterproof, truly waterproof garments that have stretch. Yeah. Right? The, the tapes aren't designed to stretch. The the seam tests that, you know, you qual- qualify them as waterproof don't work on waterproof textiles So, uh, or on stretchy textiles. So, um you know, even though some garments do have stretch, they might they may be less waterproof than other ones. So there's a there's a the, the best fabrics are generally static, uh, and then there's a, a gamut of things in between that. Yeah. So that's kind of how we focus on it. And then obviously we do a lot of trial and error. We we build garments in house. So you know you build a garment, you go ride in it. You give it to you know Yuri over in the warehouse or whoever, and you know he wears it running the forklift and then he wears it like out riding, you know, after work and, you know, um, and you kind of get intuitive feedback and, and beta on it. And once we've established a fit, we like a pattern, we like, um, a fabric, we like a construction technique. We like to put it together to make it lighter or more breathable or, uh, more air permeable. Um, we then go to our factory partners with the garment in hand, the pattern file or the paper pattern, you know, whatever, whatever format we're working in, uh, the full bill of materials with all the materials we're going to use for it. And we go to them and say, let's, let's make this together. And we, and we build that garment. And so that's generally what's happening with our process. The industry, because people have stepped back from manufacturing, there are people that are still, you know, making garments in house and doing that and, and really being the, what I would call the master of their medium. Like, you know, to manipulate things and get something truly innovative and new, you need to understand your medium. You know, if you're a painter and you need to understand that yellow and blue make green, you know, you need to understand those formats. And it's no different for any any industry, whether it's, you know, people building bike frames, you need to know how to lay up the carbon to get it the right strength. And, you know, that comes from ultimately a manufacturing insight, right? And an engineering insight. Um, And I think that's a really important element. And a parallel has lost a lot of that. You know, the, the manufacturing facilities have gotten better and better and better. Um, like really, really good in the last 20 years. Mm-hmm. And if you want to manipulate something and do something really different, you got to really understand how they build it in the first place. And I bet if you asked a hundred apparel designers out there who are doing technical apparel, when was the last time they built a, if they were working on rainwear, when was the last time they built a waterproof breathable jacket themselves? I bet there's five out of the hundred that have built a jacket at all. Wow. So they'd and just be sending like specs to a yeah, factory and the factory do it. And that's actually a really good way to leave the manufacturing knowledge at the manufacturer and do that. But there, there's a lot to be learned from this kind of grassroots build a jacket approach, you know, and, and I find even like when we were leaving Arcteryx, like we were just not doing that enough. Like people were not doing it enough. And I, you know, you try to have these programs where you can integrate designers into the factory, but like there's nothing, you know, having a program like that where it's sort of manufactured, like, yo, we're going to do this training program. It's nothing like throwing someone into the fire and saying, you're going to figure out how to industrialize this, 
climbing harness program built by building climbing harnesses in Canada at our own facility. And you're going to sit down with the sewing operator and you're going to sew, you're going to be able to sew the first, you know, I always say like, you know, after going through these projects, I'm like, I should be able to sew a better first sample than the first thousand that comes off the production line. Like that's the uh-huh. level of craftsmanship you need to like push that forward. And you know, yeah. that was, that was true for a lot of the projects we worked on at Arcteryx. It's an amazingly talented craftspeople that worked there in the design department. And they, a lot of them weren't formally trained because the disciplines didn't exist back then. Now there's some amazing disciplines, but you know, I, I think it's gone full circle. I think it went through a, a series where people were more theoretical and doing CAD drawings and illustrator and kind of envisioning what they wanted. And now I think you're getting a lot more young people kind of like really getting into the grassroots of like building stuff physically with their hands and like putting these garments together. Like it's a long time. Like if I started on building a Gore-Tex jacket here in the office, um, you know, it'll take me 35, 40 hours to build one. Like it's a huge commitment. Like you're talking most of a work week to build one because mm-hmm. you got to build all the subcomponents. I got to laminate all my zippers. I got to cut all my die openings. I've got to like figure out which zipper I've got to use, you know, and you've got to like seam tape it and you've got to, you know, and, and it's from a pattern that you're building from scratch. And that's without building the pattern. The pattern is like hundreds of hours on top of that, um, depending on where you're going with it. So, um, it takes a lot of time to do that, but it's really important to go through because, you know, I might sometimes I may be halfway through a new concept and, you know, building something. I'd be like, oh, crap, this isn't going to work. And, you know, basically, and, it, you know, if I'd sent it to a factory, it would have wasted all this time for them problem solving it, trying to figure it out. I don't I don't want them to figure it out. I want us to figure it out. I want us to figure out new ways to do it. And, you know, I kind of say, like, uh, you know, a well-designed item should go together really cleanly and easily mm-hmm. like it should, it should be like a joy like we have some products here and you know like a couple of our bib shorts and i'm still like oh yeah like i like sewing that one you know like you should like it, it it's kind of like got a rhythm to it you know when you sew it up and uh you know when you tell people oh if you make one of those like you're gonna like that and they're just like i don't get it and then they make one and they're like oh yeah i just did that seam and that seam and it just the whole thing kind of like origamis together like that's super cool <laughs> and like you can tell well-built things and so i feel like you know, as our style range grows, I hope that when we take stuff to the factory, the operators are there like at their sewing machine being like, oh yeah, this is the sweet one. It goes together so smooth. <laughs> it's not like this awkward stop start like thing going on. It's like a kind of a, you know, you kind of think, oh yeah, I'm trying to make their life easier. And that ultimately allows you to like save a bit of money here. And that enables you to like put a bit of more money into the fabric and things like that. So, you know, it's, uh, the stuff's not cheap to make. <laughs> the margins aren't high. So everyone's like, why is that jacket 500 bucks? And you're like, well, stuff's really expensive to build. The fabrics are really, really expensive. Like no one's, no one's getting rich in this industry. So, uh, it's definitely the margins are low. So yeah, yeah. And, we're, and we're still a super small group. Like, you know, we, we've grown from three in 2013, you know, first launch in 2015 to, uh, I think we got 21 or 22 people now. Okay. Um, so, you know, we're growing, we're, I'm in there where one of our temporary warehouse spaces right now, we got some testing machines and seam taper and things like that. And just our office is kind of main office across the road and we get a warehouse just in the next building over. We're kind of, kind of patching it together. Uh, you know, when we moved into our, uh, building here in Squamish, like there was no, almost no buildings here in the industrial park and we had awesome mountain views. It was like you know, 10 years ago. And now it's like, you look across the road, not that I'm going to complain, but there's like a distillery and a brewery and a cider and a taco <laughs> shop. And I'm like, you know, Squamish is kind of coming to its own. The, uh, there was like, 
one one or two pubs in town when we moved here 20 years ago and like you know the mill had kind of shut down a few years after we got here and so economically it was in a tough spot and most people was just like where they stopped to use the bathroom on the way to whistler kind of thing from vancouver uh and now it's kind of like you know uh back in 20 2008 2009 they developed uh uh half nelson which is like one of the Mm -hmm. kind of flowy machine built trails here in town um and once they they did that on like a government grant from like the economic renewal when they had the recession there in 2008 and after they built that it was like everyone's like whoa this is like the bike park but like a trail and then that kind of i felt like shifted like the riding here and all of a sudden it was like more trails getting built and the community was like hey if we build these trails like more people will come here and like they'll spend money and they'll go out to dinner and they'll do this they're not like you know these are you know the it shifted from like dirtbag riders and dirtbag climbers you know living in the cars to like you know people who had money to spend and so i mean they're buying like expensive bikes and expensive apparel and things like that and um that's continuing to grow and this place is it's off the hook right now it's uh it's wild just just to see how the whole community is rallied around trail riding as like this thing that they're known for and yeah it's like it's a pretty cool place to be like um I remember, you know, even 10 years ago, you'd walk downtown and you'd see, like, you know, downtown Squamish, which is, like, pretty small. And uh, Squamish is only, I think it, you know, it might, it's grown a, a bunch during the pandemic because everyone and their dog, I think, moved here. But uh, it's uh, about 22, 23,000 people or something. So it's still a pretty small little yeah. town. And uh, you'd see all, people you knew all the time. And now it's like, I'm like, oh, it's all these young people. Where are they coming from? <laughs> <laughs> you know, all these people you don't know and you don't know if they're tourists they live there it's 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 cool and i i love it uh to be honest i like i like how it's grown up around us a little bit so yeah it's a good sign for sure so you, right you've off. got this i'm like whatever <laughs> now there's more than one pub in town so there you good. go <laughs> nice so you've got yeah. this this uh i think fabric led approach i guess you say and you start with fabrics but at some point, you've made this decision to create some of your own fabrics, um, WTV initially, and then Airmap more recently. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm assuming that's not a small undertaking. What's the thinking behind it? And talk to us a bit about those two materials yeah, and their uses. Good question. Um, so, you know, all these things are like a progression of thought, right? So there, nothing is like. There's very few products, you know or very few things I think that we work on at seven mesh, like an old boss of mine years ago, I uh, always used to say, you know, change is incremental for the most part, you know? And, and so the question is, can you have enough incremental change to make a leap forward? And, uh, and that's kind of how we think about it. And so with textiles, you're always trying to manage, like if it's waterproof, breathable textile, you're going, well, how do I make it more breathable? Right. And if it's a non-water, if it doesn't have a membrane in there and it's not uh, water, but also waterproof, right? And so breathable with waterproofness. If it's non-membraned, you're worried about not, yes, breathability is a factor, but it's not breathability, it's air permeability. So the, mm-hmm. you know, the ability for air to move freely from one side to the other and vice versa. And that's what, you know, high levels of air permeability, if you can achieve that, that, e- that directly equals comfort right? In a garment. So if you're, that's harder to do. I mean, it's easier to do if you're standing still because you're like, mm-hmm. I've got the, I know the temperature. I know 
you know, how much I'm working. So how hot my body is, I can, I can manage it. Now you start moving, it gets harder. Do I have an outside wind coming in? Cause I'm moving quickly. Am I moving slowly? Am I, am I, uh, someone who burns really hot? Am I someone who, you know, burns really cold? And, and how do you manage people's metabolisms essentially? So that gets much harder. So, you know, with WTV, uh, with AirMap just launching, um, those are culminations of like years of thought of how we get like fabrics to do different things. And, you know, we had this fabric years ago as a, you know, polar tech power grid fabric, uh, just speaking to WTV specifically. And, you know, everyone's seen the polar tech power grid. It's got like little, there might be some like right there behind my head. Right there, that <laughs> green one right there. Um, and so, uh, you know, it's like this waffled fabric, really open knit. And so we'd always find people put one of those on and go for like, even if it was a road ride up the valley or if it was a mountain bike ride, like in the woods, um, people initially they're like, Oh, I'm freezing. Like this, the air just goes right through it. And like, yeah, of course it does. But as soon as you get hot, what happens is that hot air on the inside kind of just fills the voids in the fabric by filling those voids. It almost creates a buffer then for the cold air to like move away from you and, and, and do the same thing. And we always found like the same thing was the same thing we were trying to recreate in like ski touring. So, you know, ski touring, you're like working your ass off going uphill, you get to the top of a ridge out of the trees and all of a sudden there's like, you know, wind blowing at you off a ridge line or whatever it is. And the same thing was true. You're trying to generate heat on the inside, but you're trying to move moisture out. If that moisture gets stuck in the garment, now all of a sudden I'm, you know, that evaporative cooling of the cold wind hitting is you're starting to freeze. And that's when you're like, Oh, I got to reach into my back, put a shell on. Same thing is true in mountain biking, um, you know, or, or any other discipline. So WTV was us going, okay, well, we'd like it to be a little tighter on the face so we can achieve that through a woven textile versus a knit. Knits are more open, more stretchy. Um, we're using almost like a seersucker type fabric where it's got these little kind of like ridges in it. And so the ridges allow it to be tight in some areas and open in others. And then by doing that, then we you end up peaching the back. And so by peaching, I mean like you sand the back of the fabric essentially mm-hmm. and off the back. And that creates this fuzz effect on a, on a double, on a double weave fabric. So then you end up with this sort of like fuzz. So now I've got these pockets on the inside, this woven on the face, which now allows air to buffer off of it. And, but it's got a bit of stretch and recovery into it, you know, and there's other fabrics out there that are, don't have as much stretch, but we need it because you need it to fit multiple people. I need it to fit in some cases really close to the body. In some cases just be more comfortable and, and loose. Uh, and so we kind of found the happy medium. I mean, I had all kinds of crazy, um, things we were working on there and how to map out that fabric better and remove some of the loft in some cases and have higher loft in some areas. And I'd make all these like intricate garments where I was like hand <laughs> shaving textiles and whatever. And I'd give them to testers and I'd have like one half of the garment, never tell them, I'm like, just wear this garment. Tell me if you, if you feel anything. And I have a one half, like totally intricately constructed on the inside. Of course, they'd never know. And the other side, like total normal. And they'd be like, yeah, it feels great. I'm like, you notice any difference right to left? And they're like, nope. I'm like, <laughs> So, you know, and that's a testament to how well the fabric actually just works. And, you know, the more air perm we can put in, uh, but having still a solid structure that can kind of buffer air on the outside of the garment, the more comfortable that garment is. So if we mm-hmm. can do that, now people will just wear the garment longer. They'll have it on a climb. They'll put it on at the bottom when they're cold and be able to wear it to the top, maybe crack the zipper on the front and things like that. Uh, they'll wear it on the way down. It'll, it'll draw out a bunch of the moisture that'll get mechanically kind of stuck in the, in the yarn. 
um, you make them out of the right things. You make them out of polyester versus nylons. Like nylons hold a ton of moisture, right? It's, it's a hydrophilic yarn, uh, so it absorbs water. Polyesters are really, really dry. And so, you know, they don't have the, quite the durability, so you're always managing durability versus water pickup and trying to, you know, um, get those working. So there's, um, there's, there's a management of that. And so WTV was our first time going, hey, like what we've been thinking about for years, we used to have these pieces called the epsilons at Arcteryx, like 16, 17 years ago, and they were polyester. They were, the original test fabric was quite open. So people were like, oh, this is going to be a good ski touring piece, but they never, the manufacturing of it never quite worked. It was always kind of clammy and really tight and you couldn't get them to fit right. Uh, and then after that, we had another version called the Acto, and we used to wear those ski touring a lot, but it didn't move with you. And I was like, ah, oh, this garment, like the breathability works good, but it's just so uncomfortable to wear. And so this is like an ac- accumulation of knowledge and kind of fig- finding that one textile and going, hey, this textile is really cool. Now let's manipulate it and make it into something that can really work for cycling. So like the beauty of that fabric is like, it doesn't just work for cycling. Like, you know, it, yeah, obviously we've got pieces that are more like, you know, the Chilco hoodie, like I can wear riding on a cold winter day, but I can also just, I mean, I wore one this morning. It was like, you know, five degrees here this morning yeah. uh, when I woke up. So, uh, you know, I was wearing one actually until like two minutes before I started talking to you. So the beauty of that is that, you know, it has this huge temperature range. I can wear ski touring, I can wear riding, I can wear it wherever. Uh, and it's just more comfortable, you know, and, and uh, that's because it's not clammy and you're, you're able to have that level of air permeability in it. Hundred percent. Yeah, that Chilco anorak is the only bit of riding clothing that I ever end up wearing around the house and out and about. Like, it got a lot of use last uh, autumn, winter, and spring. Basically, people are and sometimes they're like, "Oh, well, if it lets so much air in, then how's it going to keep me warm?" And you're like, "You really just have to wear it." Like, you and once you wear it, you're like, "Man, this is good." Like, you know, it's like, <laughs> it's so good. good. Yeah, nice so, one. Yeah. Tell us a bit about Air Map then. So, uh, I yeah. mean, there's a lot going on in the industry at the moment with the removal of certain chemicals, like it's getting harder to create good waterproof, breathable, like clothing. Tell us a bit about that whole picture and then kind of where air map fits for you guys. Yeah. Um, good question. So yeah, lots going on, uh, on the PFC PFAS free, um, materials technology. And that has been for a long time. Um, I want to say like four years ago, we were like, you know, I was kind of like, you know, some of these chemicals, these what people are calling forever chemicals, um, you know, PFCs are an overall umbrella and uh, of forever chemicals, fluorinated chemistry. And then underneath that, there's like PFAS chemicals, which are a huge grouping of chemicals under this broader umbrella. So you can have a garment that's like PFAS free, but it might not be PFC free. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? It might still have fluorinated chemistry. Uh, not very often, but there are some cases where that can happen. Um, but there's like 4,300 PFAS chemicals, right? Like out there, they're, you know, forever chemicals. And they were invented as like when they were discovered, um, I mean, it was like magic, right? Like it, 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 it basically did things that no other chemistry could do. Um, I don't know who, I think it might've been DuPont or one of the big chemical companies that originally kind of started using them for industrial applications. So like it, it was used, I don't know what the, the lineage exactly is, but like, just to touch on the history because it's important to kind of know where we came from and why. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you have a garment from like 2008, 2009, 2010 at home, like a, say a Gore-Tex garment that's got like a, or any other garment, I mean, it could be a pair of like 
Docker pants that have like a stain resistant on it because it's all the same chemistry. Um, you know, that's C8 chemistry. So it had like a long chain, uh, fluorinated car, you know, fluorinated chemistry on there. So fluorocarbons were like eight molecules long or whatever it is. I'm not a chemist. So just excuse that part of it. Um, but they worked amazing. Like you could dump water on it all day long. And it would just continue to bead. The surface tension was totally different. Um, waterproof breathables are centered around the idea that that surface is dry. Mm-hmm. You know, that's when they work best. So if you can keep that surface beading, that gives the membrane the best chance of working. So the idea is that you've got this body heat on the inside, water vapor builds up as sweat. You know, it's not, it's not, it's not liquid. It's in water vapor form when it leaves your body and it's able to, with your body heat, move through that membrane. Well, if that membrane is, you know, un- unextruded, it can go or un- unimpeded and, it, and water can, you know, water vapor can move through it. Great. But if that face fabric on the outside, which protects the membrane is now soaking wet and like wetted out and you're moving through the environment at a quick speed or there's wind blowing on you, well, that's creating evaporative cooling. And so when, when hot air, moist air, hits a cold layer, what does it do? It turns to water. It turns to water. It condenses yeah. on the inside. So when you have people, nine out of ten people that call you and they're like, oh, my jacket's leaking. It's like, your jacket's not leaking. It's condensing before it can get through. So you need to, like, retreat and wash your jacket. And that's totally, like, how those things have always been working since, like, you know, Gore-Tex was used in commercial fabrics in, like, 1982 or 1979. I mean, that's always been the issue. So... If you can do that with these fluorinated chemistry, great. But now, fluorinated chemistry, not an option. It's gone away. And so, you know, it's gotten progressively worse, and now it's just gone. So all the, you know, DWR chemistry we have today is totally different, um, way better for the environment. These chemicals are not going to stay in the environment for a really long time. And so, you know, as soon as this switch started to happen, we're always like, well, the benefit of these chemistries are really good for the performance, but it's all going away eventually. So I think we should just like put our heads down and try to make more comfortable garments without it, period. And that's what we've, that's what we've done. So, you know, um, air map is not a new technology. So there's two different types of membranes out there. There's, you know, there's a few more than this, but like in outer outerwear and waterproof breathables, it's basically microporous, which means I've got a lot of little holes in something, mm-hmm. you know, small enough that vapor can move through, but not, um, you know, water molecules. Yeah. So that works really good. If you can get a microporous membrane in a, um, in a hydrophobic material, which was what Gore-Tex was like EPTFE was like brilliant. You know, it was a, it was Teflon essentially. Right. Um, but to make it, they need to use PFAS chemicals. Mm-hmm. That's the downside. And that goes for like a lot of things. You know, there's PFAS chemicals in your smartphone screen and your computer screen. There's PFAS chemicals in all the stain resistant carpet. There's PFAS chemicals in the paint on your walls. Like it's it's literally shockingly in everything. It's in the tires in your car. So that and the other thing it was used for is it stopped oil contamination. So these fluorinated chemistries or chem- chemicals stopped oil from soaking into things. And okay. so that's like a, what an amazing thing it can do, you know, um, you know, it's oleophobic. So, you know, Teflon or EPTFE, which is Gore-Tex membrane is 
oleophilic. So it absorbs mm-hmm. oil. It loves oil. Like, you know, if, if it wasn't super expensive, it would be like used to soak up like oil for oil spills, like a hundred percent. That's what it would be used for because it's so good at it. And so when you soak up oil with it, it stops breathing. It doesn't, doesn't work. And it can actually do this thing where it can actually leak through the membrane when it's really oil contaminated. So this fluorinated chemistry enabled it to work in this breathable setting, you know, and, and, uh, that and a whole bunch of other layers and things like that. So that's why, you know, 90% of the you know, um, fluorinated chemicals, the PFAS chemicals that are being used out there are used for oil contamination issues or manufacturing. The DWR coatings are all going away. That's not where we're having the issue. The issue is that we're addicted to these magic chemicals as a global society because they're used everywhere. And so, you know, if you look at the textiles are like a blip on the radar of the global problem of forever chemicals and where they're being used. And, you know, back in the 60s, when they didn't need them anymore, they were just flushed downstream like into the rivers. And the problem is that goes into the food supply, that food supply gets eaten. And because the chemicals don't break down over time, it just doesn't go away. It only gets worse. And so, you know, you can find these forever chemicals in, I think it's 99.9% of the, the blood of every human on the planet. Whoa. It's pretty crazy. Yeah. You know, and, you know, kids, even, you know, newly born kids, already have it because it's being passed down through the bloodstream. So it's pretty shocking. So, you know, the way we look at it is like the sooner we can go away from those things, regardless if textiles are like a big part of the global problem, if we can help, you know, move that message the right direction. And we're a, you know, we're a small company. So we have like limited resources to pull off big projects, but we also don't have the constraints of big companies. So what we decided to do is like, I said, you know, and I think Cal might have said this first, but I totally agree with it, which is like you can either be you can either be part of the problem or part of the solution, but there's no middle ground. And so we made a call early on to say we're going to start moving away. Gore-Tex, you know, has been by far the one of the most advanced um you know, for on the forefront of changing it. Like they're going through a change right now where they're changing from EPTFE to EPE, which is, you know, expanded polyethylene, which is a new membrane technology. Whether it works as well is not irrelevant, but it's, it's the new norm. So, you know, um, we'll continue to develop and discover new ways of doing it, but is it going to breathe as well as the old cortex? No, it's not. It's going to work differently. And the fluorinated chemistry literally was magic and the magic is gone now. And we have to find other ways to create that. So as that is a precursor, the air map technology, you know, is different. We wanted something that wasn't uh, a waterproof garment. We wanted something that fell in this, like, you know, 90% of the time I'm riding my bike, it's not pouring rain. It's like either the trail's wet, even in Squamish, which we get, you know, we get a ton of rain here. Um, you know, I don't need a fully waterproof garment for a lot of that riding. I need a waterproof garment if I'm going on a multi-day trip when I might get stuck out in the rain and it's like do or die. I, I, I like waterproof garments when we have a super wet day and I want to go just do a lunchtime lap and that's great. But most people are like, you know, if I live in Colorado, I'm like, okay, well it's raining. I'm going to wait till tomorrow, but I need something for the cold. I need something for, you know, that kind of thing you guys, I mean, you know, in the UK you get pretty crappy weather. So, uh, you know, I think we're on the, we're on the spectrum. So, um, there's a big difference between having something that's weather resistant. So what we decided to do is with these new technologies, knowing and old technologies, but all of them being PFAS free and fluorination free, 
how do we how do we get the breathability levels we're accustomed to and that we need? So, you know, a lot of these jackets that are you know in the industry that aren't um, as we talked about microporous membranes. There's another technology which is you know eons old and it's called monolithic urethanes. So monolithic meaning one layer. Mm-hmm. They fundamentally work differently. They the the sweat from your body has to absorb into the membrane the polyurethane, which is um, which is hydrophilic, so it absorbs water, and then it has to move through that with your body heat pushing it through, and then it has to phase change again and evaporate. So because it has to do this phase change, it doesn't work as well, you know, as far as breathe, like being open and breathing. So if you want to make a garment that's PFAS free. And it's got some stretch and it's doing these, it's got these interesting things. You have to go down that monolithic road currently, you know, and, and to make it, you know, a waterproof fabric. So our air map fabric is built off this monolithic um, sort of camp of fabrics, but we're manipulated in totally new ways. So I'm really reserved to make a whole garment out of monolithic urethane. I just don't think it has the breathability that we want as a performance garment. So when I started on this project, I'm like, okay, well, there's a couple of things we could do. We always like the idea of these hybrid garments, garments that could breathe differently. So I kind of said, well, the problem with that is then you end up with minimum problems. You can't match the fabrics and the characteristics. The faces work differently. They breathe at different rates. It's, it gets really complex and messy. So we've always wanted like one, a garment that looks like one garment, but it's like, has like mapped in areas of different breathability and this goes back to like you know thought process that we've had for the last 20 years of like how do we do that so i sat down with one of our vendors and i said well here's what i want to do and i mapped out this thing of like can i have uh, one face fabric and then can i have three variations on it so i want one face that works the same with the same you know pf pfc free coatings on there then i'm going to laminate it in one case to a backer so just with it's with like little dots of glue. So it goes on the backer. So now I've got windproof fabric with good water repellency on the outside. Mm-hmm. I've got another fabric which is just the face I can use, which really good air permeability on that one, uh, less wind resistance, but really good air permeability. And then I want a third one which has the face, a monolithic PU, and then a backer. So now I've got one fabric, that three layer one that's fully waterproof. Uh, wind obviously, if it's windproof, it's waterproof, you know, or vice versa. Um, and then I've got the second layer, which has good levels of air permeability, really good breathability because it's got that backer on it. And then I've got the single layer where it can use for like gussets and coughs and all these things. So now I've got one garment where all the fabrics match. They're all one dye loft. They don't look weird. And I'm able to put them together. The backers are the same. So everything kind of looks the same. And I can put them together in this way where I can map in breathability in different levels. I've got three options to choose from. And then we're able to take that into our design toolbox and create these garments based on that sort of like principle, those principles. And that's really what AirMap is all about. It's about, you know, we always talk about like, we're always talking about keeping water out. Well, the one thing that keeps you in the garment longer is air permeability and managing air. And that's kind of where the word air map came from. It's, it's mapping the air within your body to make you more comfortable and keep that garment on your body longer. And so by doing this with this old monolithic technology, you know, or, or platform, we're now able to take this, this, you know, really good and more environmentally friendly package and actually make it work even better than it, than some of the other fabrics could have because we've mapped in this breathability map into the garment. And, you know, we, you know, we're not, we don't 
you know, Aiden doesn't talk about the marketing, you know, um, and how you would market that. And so we're really careful in seeing what's waterproof because we know that people are looking to us for really waterproof solutions. In 90% of my riding, I could wear an air map piece and be yeah. totally like in a pouring rain and totally be fine. But I'm not going to tell someone it's a waterproof garment and then go off on a you know multi-day adventure and then and go there with it. Um, so we do say it's weather resistant. But man, like you got to look on the inside and go, okay, well it's got breathability under the arms where my arms are kind of like sheltered as my body's in it. It's not designed to stand around in the rain. It's designed to give you maximum performance while riding and keep you as comfortable as possible so you can get more laps in. And that's and that's really what we're trying to do. So um, yeah, so we develop this sort of fa- like I said, we start with the fabric. And then now we design in different elements into it and create a range of products for different different disciplines of cycling, and that's really what um, what we've been focused on with AirMap. And yeah, yeah. having it PFAS free. And so, like you know, our collection, we would have been completely clear of PFAS chemicals across the whole range for twenty four. Obviously, we've got some inventory. Everyone's got inventory right now, um, so we got a little bit extra. But you know, uh, we're virtually clear on all that and we'll be totally clear for, of everything by 25 so you know that's like i feel pretty proud about that as a small company being able to kind of do that um you know the big players aren't aren't moving that quickly and i feel pretty good about that you know if we can you know get people riding their bikes more and have fun doing it and have less impact and man we're that's what we're all about yeah good stuff and i guess like in the sort of in the outdoor clothing worlds patagonia probably the ones everyone knows like leading the charge on like sustainability and that side of things what are your what's your take on that challenge for the industry because we talk a lot about all of that stuff these days i think patagonia is doing a great job and um you know got quite a few friends who've worked there over the years are working there currently and um yeah i mean they're they're leading the charge and they're making it they're doing it you know they're, they're going for it and i i hats off to them for sure um, we're really bad at seven mesh about talking about what we're doing. <laughs> so, uh, like we, we repair all our garments, you know, in house when we start the business is like, okay, well someone tore their jacket. Like we'll just repair that. You know, the, one of our goals and sort of, um, principles is obviously like we want our garments to last a really long time in the environment. Like we want them to last a really long time, but then obviously you want them to then break down over time you know, once they've been discarded, uh, or they can be reused into other things. Like there's a, there's a fallacy in the industry that you can recycle garments. Like, yeah, there are some, like if you have like a tech tee, that's a hundred percent polyester and the thread is polyester and it's all the same material uh, or a certain percentages, there are garment recycling that, that can happen. And the technology is getting better. It's really not mainstream at all. Like nobody's Uh really doing that. Like when you, it can reuse it as in like, you know, make it into something else or cut panels out of it and modify it in that way. But as far as like recycling the material goes, it's not, it's not really a thing. And then it gets even harder when you get into like, you know, laminated fabric. So now you've got say a backer, that's one material, another one, that's another material, another one, that's a different material. And now they've got to be separated. Like you can't really do it. Um, you know, even, you know, he's as an example, but like pop bottles out there or like plastic bottles, you know, that's, they all, you know, get recycled and we can make garments out of them. But like, they're all different colors. Like all those colors have to be sorted into separate things. The color has to be removed before the yarn can be used again, like chemically. Like it's a toxic process. Like, you know, if we want to do something really impactful, 
ban colored plastic bottles, like make them all clear. You know, it would make such an impact, but you know, we can't seem to, we keep focusing on, I feel like the wrong thing. Like that would be so impactful on, on a recycling process. So, you know, we use recycled materials in like a huge proportion of our range and it gets more and more every year. You know, big companies like Adidas uh, have said they're going to use 98% of their range is going to be fully recycled by 2024 or something like that. I'm like, I don't think there's enough recycled material on the planet to make, to meet that demand. Like, I don't know if that's actually, I don't know if that's actually possible. I would question if it is possible. Um, you know, we run into supply chain problems using more and more, and there's a fine line between hundred percent recycled and partially recycled. And I think we're all just trying to do as much as we can with what we've got. And I think, you know, there's a, people are always like, you need to do less. You know, I'm like, well, I think we actually need to do more so that we can have less of an impact. So that's, it's a tremendous amount of work. Um, you know, AirMap has got a recycled, 100% recycled backer. It's got a, a you know, 60% recycled face. Um, you start getting over those numbers and you get, it gets pretty hard to get a source for it and go down that road. So we repair all of our garments. We try to make them last as long as possible. We try to make them easily repairable. So like mm-hmm. uh, center front zippers, for example, like, you know, there's companies out there that bar tack the tops of those zippers because they had a zipper fallout like years ago. Do you know how long it takes to remove a center front zipper? Like a really long time, like, like to remove, you gotta, you gotta heat it up. You gotta take off the tape on the inside. You gotta pick the basing stitch. Then you gotta pick the stitch behind it. Then you gotta pull the zipper out. Then you gotta do it without any damage. So then you can put the new zipper in. If there's bar tacks at the top and bottom of it, it's going to take double the time, if not more. So like, we're trying to make things easily repairable is one of our goals. So like when we see something that's like, you know, we repaired in house, we have other facilities where we do repairs. We do crash replacements and things like that for people if they tear it, but we prefer to repair it. Um, we're trying to get better at talking about that. We've, I mean, we've done that from day one because it's, it's just the right thing to do. You know, we have people stop in and they're like, Oh, I teared my shorts today on my ride. Can we fix it? And we're like, sure, we'll squeeze you in and we figure it out. And, you know, like Sydney does those and we've got another woman, Emma does them. And, you know, before that I was doing them, like, it's like whatever, whatever we can do to try to make people's experience better. We're trying to do that. Keep the garments out there longer. Um, it's really easy just to replace it. Like if someone calls you and they're like, something's wrong with my jacket. And some cases you can't fix it. It's just like, it either doesn't work economically. And it, it some, we, some of those customers are like, you know, I know it's not going to work economically. I know it's going to, you know, do that. We didn't actually charge people for any repairs for a really long time. And then we're like, geez, we're spending a lot of money doing this. We might have to start charging in some cases. And so someone wants their zipper replaced, even though it doesn't make sense economically, we still do it for them. Of course we do. And, uh, we just try to manage it the best we can. So, you know, it's, uh, we want to keep those garments out there as long as possible. We want people to, you know, have a good experience. People are still, afraid they're going to crash on their, their jacket mountain biking and things like that. Durability is different in cycling than it was in mount. It is in mountaineering or climbing or skiing, you know, climbing, there's like this constant abrasion that happens kind of mm-hmm. like, you know, cycling garments on your saddle or your bike, like, you know, shorts and stuff, they get ground, you know, all this fine dirt and grit kind of grinds up in there and uh, really eats the short fabric. And it whitens over time because you're starting to see like those first fibers with the color on them, like fray. And then you see the little exposed white ones underneath um, where the dye saturation might not have been as good. And you just have that happening over time. So those garments kind of like wear and tear is one thing. But how do you make the garments last as long as possible? 
And then when they're done at the end of the day, how do you either reuse components or make them into new things and that kind of thing? We have a, we have a giant box right here uh, of stuff. When you can't repair it, we save it. And then, you know, we have plans that we don't have very many because, you know, we're a small company. But when we get enough, we'll do something with that and make something out of it. Yeah, that's impressive. Do you do, you do like patch kits and stuff as well? Is that, have I we do. heard that? Yeah, yeah. So we do, um, again, we don't talk about that either, but we do um, like an at-home patch kit. We used to do some iron-on ones. Now we have some sticky ones that people can put on. Um, anything we can do to like keep the keep people from having to send their jacket back. So, you know, if we can keep it out there longer before they have to do a repair, it's just the cost and the sort of carbon footprint to fly garments, whether, you know, any kind of mail uh, across the globe uh, is easier. Plus, people don't want to give up their garments. They usually call to repair a garment when it starts raining, like on a, a waterproof one. Like, it's like it just starts to rain. Like, another couple of weeks here in Squamish, people will start, the warranties will start to flood in with people last season who forgot about their garments. Um, and then we'll start doing repairs on it. And so, you know, you don't want to do that. You want to send them the patch kit so they can keep that garment and use it as much as possible. Yeah. You've got some places doing repairs outside of Canada now as well, yeah? Totally. We've got um, one agency in the UK, one in Switzerland, uh, another one we use sometimes in Vancouver, uh, one in Seattle. Uh, yeah. And we kind of manage it the best we can. You know, we, all our customer services here in Squamish and we manage that um, as best we can. And, you know, it's we're a small business. So like, Every single time someone calls in with like a warranty or a tear or a crash or whatever, I, I see it. You know, like everyone, everyone here sees it and we all comment on it. And we're like, oh, why did that fail? Oh, have we seen any more of those? Has, has anyone seen one of those before? You know, we kind of have a chat about it and, and talk through it. Um, yeah, it's, it's been a super cool uh, process. We learn a lot from that. Uh, and then we log it all, and then we incorporate that into the design the next season to try to try to uh, tweak it and fix it. Yeah, incremental improvements, like you said. I think so. What what's the future for Seven Mesh then? Where do we go from here? We get pretty much Ooh. ten years in, but yeah, ten years in, we probably have more styles than we have sales. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know, we're we're still having uh, one of our goals as a business was to. Um, uh, to have more fun than anyone along the way. And, uh, you know, sometimes when we're getting stressed out, running a small business and trying to make payroll and things like that, we're, we're definitely feeling, uh, feeling the pinch, but I think we're just trying to have fun doing it. You know, we've got a bunch of new things on the waterproof breathable side we've been working on. Um, we've got some things we're working on the protection side, which is pretty cool. Like we actually started working on a protection project in 2013. We started the business and then we just got overwhelmed by the amount of stuff we were working on. And there was a lot of interesting protection coming out in the market then. Uh, so we just shelved it and put it in a box. And now we're working on a new project there, which is um, so far so good. So, uh, yeah, it was super cool. And then, um, yeah, I don't know. Like, you know, incremental improvements is, is what I've been focused on. And, you know, hopefully teaching more people about 7Mesh and what we're trying to do and trying to take some of the – you know, performance attributes that we've been so accustomed to in, in climbing and skiing and applying those to riding. And, you know, that's gotten so much better in the last 10 years, but that's really what it's all about. Like, let's ditch the Lycra. Let's ditch the NASCAR prints. Let's, let's get, like, let's make it really nice. We're not, we're not motocross. Like, you know, mountain biking can, can stand it on its own and have its own aesthetic. So, yeah. uh, yeah, we've been, we've been really focused on that and, and trying to pave the way and, you know, it's been been fun so far. 
Definitely. Yeah, you've definitely gone more kind of low key on colors and uh, and graphics, I would say. It's not like you could wear it off the bike and it you don't look out of place, which is cool. Totally. We're, and we're also like, you know, design can be very seasonally focused and, you know, the that's fun. But the problem with that is that it's not timeless. And so mm-hmm. that when people end up buying, you know, they feel like they need to buy something more frequently and I know that's good for sales, but it's, um, it's not really good for the planet. Like you, you want to have something that lasts a long time and I want to, I want to still love it. You know, I want to buy it one year and I want to have it three years later and still love it. Like still want to wear it. And I think there's something about timeless design, um, that just, it's just got longevity. It's got, it's got real, um, sense of place around it. And that, you know, that's ultimately what we're trying to do at seven match. Yeah. And pretty much, I think most things I own from Seven Mesh go together. It's not like I've got a pair of trousers that doesn't go with anything apart from one top. <laughs> like that, that yeah. subtle nature helps everything kind of work together, which is pretty cool, actually. Yeah, cool. Nice. Well, we're getting close to the end of our time. Um, but one quick question for you for anyone else that's like thinking about going all in and uh, creating something special within the mountain bike world. Any advice from 10 years into what you three guys have been Gosh. setting out to achieve? Um, God, good question. Um, ignorance is bliss, man. You got to like <laughs> just dive in. You, you really do. You got to, you got to dive in. I think, um, I couldn't imagine being like an entrepreneur and having no experience and, and my hat is off to those people. Uh, you're like, I started this in my garage and I didn't know what I was doing. I had no experience in the industry. I just wanted to do something. And I, I, that would have been so hard. I mean, it's hard, you know, starting a business, you know, as a, as having a lot of industry experience and coming from like a really established brand that, you know, we learned a tremendous amount from. And, um, I would say just like, do it, just jump right in. Yeah. Like, don't think about it too much. If you think about it too much, you'll stall out and you won't, you won't do it. So, uh, if you got something you want to go after, go after it and figure out how to do it. That would be my advice. But maybe not the best advice. Oh, no. I think it's good. Sometimes you just got to go for things, hey. Well, it's been uh, it's been super fun chatting, finding out more about your background and uh, more about Seven Mesh and the fun stuff that you've been working on. Um, if people want to find out more, where are the best places for them to be looking? Check out our website, and you know, if you email their general email there on our website or Instagram, or whatever, like you're talking to someone at our office. Like we're we're small still, um, so yeah. If you want to find out more, just shoot us a line and someone will answer your call like a real person. And, uh, yeah, you can find out more about what we're doing. You know, like I said, we're not great about talking about certain things. So it's fun having these conversations because we get to talk about stuff that we're already doing that we don't really talk about too much. And if you're ever in Squamish riding, and you want to see what we do, like stop by, we'll show you all our sewing machines and kind of how we do things, give you the tour of the office and the warehouse. I mean, it's not, not super exciting, but uh, we get you know simple tools and good knowledge, and we put them together into the best possible way we can. So stop by, man. Knock awesome. on our door. Good stuff, man. Well, it's been super fun chatting. Um, yeah, like I say, I'm appreciating everything you're doing so far. It's some awesome kit in my wardrobe, and uh, I look forward to seeing where it goes from here. So yeah, thanks for your time, Ian. Thank you, Chris. Yeah, great, great speaking with you. that's it for this episode with Ian. I really hope you've enjoyed it. 
A massive thank you to Seven Mesh for supporting this episode. Don't forget, you can get 20% off all of Seven Mesh's incredible clothing, including their brand new air mat range, by using the code 7 downtime 20 That's the number seven, followed by Mesh X Downtime, then the number 20, all lowercase with no spaces. That's 7 downtime 20 over at 7mesh.com. 7 Mesh ship globally, and that code is valid until the end of January 2024. Don't forget, if you want to help support the podcast, the best way to do that is by heading over to patreon.com forward slash downtime podcast and setting up a donation. That's Patreon spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. I know times are tough for a lot of people right now, so if that doesn't work for you, then no worries. But if you are able to support, then it's much appreciated. We've also got t-shirts, sweatshirts and hoodies available over at downtimepodcast.com forward slash shop. Make sure you're following the podcast by hitting that button in your podcast app or head into downtimepodcast.com forward slash follow. You can also get a bit of extra downtime by signing up to our newsletter at downtimepodcast.com forward slash newsletter. That's it for today. We're going to have another awesome episode coming up really soon. But until next time, get out and ride. <laughs>